Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I say hello to Davy Fitzconnor. Hey, Davy. How's it going, Connor? It's Davy Fitz here. I'm on the road and I'm listening to you. Great. On the podcast there. Great stuff. Yeah. Look at. I heard you talking about tennis players in Ireland. Yeah. Well, look at. I, I've been thinking. And I'll tell you what we can do. Mm. You give Irish tennis players helmets. Okay. And you tell them they can jump over the net so they can. Okay. With them sticks. And start getting stuck into each other, hell okay. for leather, on the two sides of the net. Sure, it's all the same over in Wimbledon. They have a field. They have Hawkeye. It's all there waiting for us. Just oh, the only thing that's missing is the violence sorties. <laughs> My favourite sport is tennis. I love tennis. I've loved it since I was 10 years of age when I first saw Bjorn Borg amble out to centre court in his ridiculously cool Fila tennis shirt. That immediately compelled me, of course, to run into my backyard and put two hands on my racket and hit thousands and thousands of tennis balls. I loved all of the tennis. The women's tennis, Martina Navratilova against Chris Evert, Steffi Graf, Monica Selesh, Venus and Serena. And, of course, the men, Borg, Connors, McEnroe, Gerolitis, a golden age. Uh, Lendl, Becker, Sampras in the 90s. And again, all the way up to perhaps the greatest age of tennis of them all now. Djokovic, Nadal, and of course, Federer. I've always tried to figure out why I love tennis so much. Was it just that beautiful ballistic pop of ball against racket string? And then it dawned on me, no, tennis and a tennis court is very like a stage, an amphitheatre. It has an audience and performers. My line? Your line, my line, your line. Applause. The most nervous I ever get in my life is not on stage, but on a tennis court, playing a game of tennis competitively, being watched by four or five people maybe, if I'm lucky. So this week on the podcast, I decided to indulge myself. It's Wimbledon time, and I decided to talk tennis. So who better to chat to than a former Irish number one tennis player, a man who played Wimbledon. God, imagine that. A man who was two points away from playing Roger Federer at Wimbledon. Wow. This week, I sat down with Connor Nyland, and I was in my element. All of a sudden, got like four or five pings on my phone. The draw had come out for the main draw. Every message said, Djokovic, man. Ten, ten <laughs> Djokovic, smiley faces. Djokovic, Djokovic, Djokovic. Ten, ten, ten smiley faces, faces, yeah. So it was, uh, so then I knew, oh my God. You're going to play Novak Djokovic. I was up 4-1, double break. So serving at 4-1 in the fifth um, to play... Federer Roger Federer and Federer and uh, centre court got a little bit nervous yeah um, King Richard Any, have you seen it no trained with the Williams sisters for a couple of weeks go on Bob's how were Aries they when I was when we were all about 16, 17 yeah do you remember their and attitudes I met, or? and I met Richard there he was Did hanging you? around and he shook my hand and I remember Richard coming up to me before my session with Serena and saying it's your turn today boy <laughs> it's court 17, court 17. Um, what was it yeah. like on playing at Wimbledon in front of a crowd because it was a big crowd that day it was full of Irish flags yeah. and silly green hats there was ole you know, ole ole stuff. Yeah. and then it was the fields of Athen Rye when yeah. I went up 4-1 at Wimbledon uh, uh, yeah <laughs> and it, like even for a few days after people were saying jeez it was the best atmosphere on an outside court that I've ever seen that's my interview with Connor Nyland coming up very, very shortly. And I can guarantee you, I really enjoyed this conversation and I think you will as well. But first, the story of the week. It's got to be, yeah, of course, my friends, I am the story of the week. It's Boris, of course. He's gone. 
He's gone, he's gone, he's gone, but we won't go there. We won't, we won't rehash all of that. More interesting aspect is, what is he going to do next? Lots of rumours floating about. One of them, that he's even going to join Love Island. Welcome back to Love Island. Fresh from his eviction from reality TV show Downing Street, the new Islander has arrived. It's Boris! I must say, this is indeed chav-tastic. One big house, lots of sex and sleaze. It's like conservative body headquarters. Pincha! Boris meets one of the new housemates. It's Ronan Keaton's son, Jack. Fair play, Boris. I'm Jack. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hello, my little red-headed Irish friend. Me dad says he loved you when in Wimbledon that time back at... Love 15, and that's what I intend to do in this house. Uh, Boris, aren't you married, mate? Well, it never stopped me before. Chumba wumba, ladies. Let's get the bazookas out. Gentlemen, prepare cannons for firing. Boris seems to fit right in. Why wouldn't I? A bunch of horny, randy, brainless yeti twats with ambitions far beyond their talent or pay grade. Huzzah! I'm home. He's really taking to Love Island. I'm mugged off. You know, you're my type on paper. Mm-hmm. Let's recouple, darling. Wowzers. But there's a secret text. Hey, I've just had a text. Shh. Islanders, please inform Boris that due to the reckless breaking of Love Island rules, he has been asked to leave Love Island immediately. Boris, in fairness, what happened? Let's just say things came to a head last night. <laughs> Are you serious? They don't call me BJ for nothing. Toblerone. Boris must leave Love Island immediately. I'm sorry, I'm staying on. <gasps> Seems Boris is actually a secret remainer after all on Love Island. Hello, Boris. Take me tonight. It's Nadine Dorries! Right, that's it. I'm out. Take me, Boris. Take me. (laughs) Exclusive comedy every week. I'm delighted that Nadine Dorries finally made it onto my podcast. Exclusive comedy every week, um, of course, on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Thanks to you for listening, subscribing and following. Please, if you can just do one thing for me, just tell one other person about the podcast that you're enjoying it or if you're enjoying it. Get in touch with me, of course, personally, mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all and I get back to about 95% of them. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, Mario Rosenstock Official. So find me on any of those uh, social media outlets as well. Um, Listen, it's time to talk tennis. Uh, It's that time of year. I probably only get a chance to do this once a year. But listen, I wanted to talk to Conor Nyland. And I asked him, I started at the beginning, really. Why did he and how did he become a tennis player? Tell me about growing up your early life in terms of, you know, what kind of background created a professional tennis player? So, for example, I think people who are listening to this and Irish people in general, we always associate tennis with being a middle class sport generally, you know, Um, I mean, in. And, I, and you'll probably confirm that opinion. Yeah. So, well, my mom grew up playing. Um, her her mom built or lined out and mowed the grass uh, out the back garden in Tipperary when she was younger and her brothers and sisters all played. So my aunt Siobhan was in the final of Fitz, which is, you know, the big national yeah. event. So it was in her side of the family. My dad was, was Gaelic football. But what happened was uh, dad moved to England um, and for, for work, we, we all went over there in the in the early 70s. So my eldest sister, Gina and Ross got into it there. We actually lived across the road from Edgebaston Priory, which is an amazing tennis club where they still have a, a WTA event. Um, so my sister got really into it there. My brother, I was the youngest of, of, of the four. Um, so kind of followed in their footsteps. But mm. yeah, so it was a family thing for me. 
Yeah. So even I would like as a as a person who loves tennis and plays tennis to at like club level, um, I would have even known Gina's name because Gina would have been famous in tennis circles for being a great tennis player. And uh, yeah, no, Gina. So when when we were uh, what was it, 1984, we moved back to back to Ireland, um, and Gina was 11 and uh, was I think final of the British Nationals under 12 oh. and was going to the kind of big European events with the British national team. So she was sort of on a real path. And I remember my uh, my dad traveled with her, at, with the GB team to a couple of junior events in France. Um, and Monica Sellers was there a couple of years behind Gina and my dad coming back, telling the family that he'd just seen, you know, a future great and she was nine. And uh, you could already kind of yeah, tell, yeah. Yeah, he said she was just incredible and she had a weird technique, two-handed forehand, two-handed backhand. Ah! <laughs> ah! sounded like Joan Burton having an orgasm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what, when, when Grud came in, if it was a few years later, he didn't talk about that, but he said his, her tennis was amazing. And, uh, <laughs> you can't get, you can't unsee I that now, I a seagull Connor. had landed or something. Yeah, well, you can't. I am a seagull as well, Connor. <laughs> They're quite big and St. Stephen's Green across the road. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, so she, um, she was incredible. Um, and then, so Gina was kind of my, my role model then my brother Ross um, I remember that name as well won won the British under nine short tennis championships God. believe it or not beating Tim Henman in the finals no. so, so we were kind of you know it was tennis yeah. um, and then so we moved back to Limerick um, we, and that's a good that's a good tennis place as well well yeah in the mid 80s um Limerick Lawn Tennis Club was was our local club and has produced a few Davis mm. Cup and Fed Cup players. Mm. But we got Dad built a court in the back garden, um, and uh, so we used to what, play. What was play it? There. Grass artificial or grass? Artificial yeah. grass. Oh, for artificial grass. Yeah. So a proper court and all weather. So I used to roll out of bed and hit serves, and yeah. um, so I'd hit with my mum in the afternoons, and then weekends brought my brothers and yeah. sisters and my dad. So it was just part of what we did. Yeah, um, exactly. I get that. Um, and this because that's very interesting. I find that the way people you, you find people who are good at things, and you go, well, how did you get into it? And this is a different thing. But Malcolm Gladwell writes writes a book about outliers and stuff. And yeah, I've read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Gates and stuff. And you go, yeah. is Bill Gates the smartest man in the world? Is Bill Gates the best guy at computers in the world? No, did it Bill, more than anybody else. He did it more than anybody else. <laughs> Why? Because he was exposed to it more than anybody else. Like for example, if you go back to his early childhood. He was in Seattle and he was one of, that was Seattle University was one of the few places that had mainframe computers that allowed to stay open all night and kids could come in and play. There you go. A lot of it's luck. You a know, lot of it is luck. It's yeah. circumstance and that. So, so but that listen, you it. were good though. So when did you, when, when did you find out you were, when did you realise that you were good or, or uh, there's different levels of good, obviously. Yeah, so well, did you that, know under exactly 12 that point. you were good? That, that's the point is the different levels of good, I suppose. Mm. So like, yeah, I mean, I won. I think I won the Limerick Open under 12 when I was nine. I was sort of, you mm. know, beating people two or three years older than me in my, in Limerick and stuff. So I was kind of- Good youngster. Yeah, but you don't think that way when you're when you're a kid, but then obviously then going to the big national tournaments, um, I won the, the Irish nationals under 12 and um, was sort of, as I say, within Munster was sort of probably the best within a couple of years range of my age. And then when, when obviously nationally then was, um, so yeah, one, Nationals under 12 at 11, one under 40 nationals at 12. So I was kind of always at that level. But what happened was I went, started going to the big European events when I was 12 and 13 and 14. And then you're now going to a, to a world level mm. that I hadn't been exposed to. Um, so there's a tournament called Les Petits A, which means the little champions. Um, it's kind of the under 14 unofficial world championships that like Nadal and you see 
images on uh, and, and photos and videos on, on YouTube. This is Nadal. tennis porn for me yeah, now, folks. I am Nadal. loving this. Continue, Connor. <laughs> Keep going. Nadal, Murray, Djokovic, they've all played it and, and some have won, some haven't. Um, so I went there and um, just this the level, you know, going from, from playing in Ireland to going to that was, was actually tough because it was a little bit demotivating because I kind of had this dream of going to be playing Wimbledon, maybe winning Wimbledon, then 11 and 12 reality sort of sets in you go gee I've, I've i've got some tough tough roads road ahead so um yeah it was it was good good for me in some ways but but sort of difficult in, in another way that you know reason realizing the level out there it's a bit like what dad dad seeing monica sellers going oh my god this girl is unbelievable yeah. it was a bit like that for me going, yeah eye opener um and the young the young tennis stuff brings me back to that idea i think it was federer so he was federer was i think it was federer was good he was winning under 12s when he was eight he was winning under um, eights when he was four and he was winning under fours when he was a fetus. <laughs> he was actually the, the top fetus tennis player in the world. <laughs> Federer fetus. Uh, no, but here's what I'm trying to say. Um, so you so you realised you were good and then going abroad to the Petitage, Pessy? Les Petitage, the little champions. Les Petitage yeah. made, was an eye-opener for Bit you. Bit of an eye-opener yeah. um, and would have seen Federer and played Federer, uh, you know, in the under-14s. Um, well, stop the lights there now, Connor. I have to stop you there. You played Federer under-14s. Yeah. Take me back to that. So we went to the Winter Cup, which is uh, the European team event for under-14s. So there was a group of four of us and I played in the first match a guy called June Cato um, from Switzerland who would have been the number one for Switzerland. So he would have been a year older than me and Federer were the same age, 1981. And he uh, he beat me pretty comfortably. I think it was like two and two. Um, and then we actually played uh, sort of a reverse singles match. So the number one played the number two, the two played number one, a bit like Davis Cup. And I played Federer um, and uh, Beat him uh, seven five six two um, in a in this, in this Federer, match. Folks. So it was, I suppose, he he wouldn't have been considered one of the real top top two three four five in Europe at that stage. He was really loose and taking big swings, playing like really a risky kind of aggressive tennis. Um, what did you think of his game? A little bit in and out concentration wise, um, maybe trying hard, maybe not trying so hard, sort of, um, yeah, very, just very loose. You know, the big swings that he has, yeah. the way he sort of languid sort of way, yeah. he, it was almost like his game and his talent hadn't kind of mi- melded and mixed yet. It was sort of like they were both a bit What was his persona like on court? Because for those of us who are federistas out there, uh, you, we know that uh, as, a, as a youngster, he had a very bad temper, yeah. like McEnroe-like yeah. and Borg-like that. Most, Borg a lot, most that of us did, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> most tennis players do because it's a game of errors. You're constantly, as you know, Mario, uh, when you're playing, you know, you might be lucky to hit two winners a game and the rest is either your opponent's mistakes or your mistakes. Mm. So you're constantly managing that. Um, so yeah, he, he, he wasn't um, badly behaved, we'll say, when I played mm. him. He was, um, you know, I say a little bit in and out concentration-wise, he might have been a little bit, uh, again, thinking back, it was sort of uh, 30 years ago nearly at this stage, yeah. but he was, um, yeah, but had that reputation, I think, yeah, yeah. already. So when did you realise then that, because... Because you were good, but then you realized you were better than good to a point. Um, and when did you realize you were better than good that you go, Christ, this might be my career? There was no kind of, as I say, light switch moment. It was sort of always a part of me. I knew it was part of my identity. I was a very good tennis player. Am I going to be a professional? There's a chance, you know. But it was coming from Ireland, you haven't maybe got those role models. 
you know, maybe if you're if you win the nationals under fourteen in the US or Spain, you go, well, look at the list of names that have done this. But when you do that in Ireland, you look at the list of names and, and nobody's kicked on and had yeah. a top career. So you're always a little bit I think as an Irish player anyway, a bit one foot in, one foot out. Um, yes. you're doing your school, you know, you're you're doing uh maybe I'm still playing soccer at thirteen, fourteen, you're starting to play a little bit of rugby when you go into first year in secondary school. Whereas, you know, these these guys who were who were kind of really at it, like Federer, I think, went to the Swiss Academy at thirteen, fourteen, the Swiss National Academy, and was just fully tennis. And you know, when I'm at school from nine to three, the teachers you know, barely know I play tennis. You know, and I'm kind of sneaking an hour and a half in in the afternoons. Yeah. So there was sort of I was to say I was I was a tennis player trying to do big things in the world, but probably not going as all out as I needed to at that age. Um. So. So I suppose, yeah, I was hedging my bets a little bit as yeah. a player. So I knew I had a chance, but then not maybe may, not maybe going full tilt. Mm. But then you did. Yeah, well, I did eventually. Mm. Uh, I went, I took, after uh, my junior cert in Limerick, I went to Millfield, which is a, a well-known sports school in England for three years, did my A-levels there. Um, that's produced a load of kind of rugby players and swimmers and, and had, but had a good tennis program as well. Went there for three years and, uh, Took a year off after Millfield, played full time, did a bit of a tour, got to 800 in the world as a 19 year old, <clears throat> which sounds rubbish, but isn't too bad for a 19 year old. Um, but then decided to take a scholarship to Berkeley in, in California um, for my for my kind of four years of a college tennis scholarship. So I had that experience and then went on the tour at the end. So I was sort of 23 going out on the tour. You know, Federer had probably won three Wimbledons, yeah. two Frenches at that stage. So, <laughs> you know, the pathway sort of verges at 13 or 14 and it's hard to make that up again. I understand, yeah. And you you, you embarked on a professional tennis career. So for our listeners, uh, how did your professional tennis career go? How well did you do? I know how well you did. And if you put it in perspective and context, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, well, I suppose the numbers are my career high was 129 in the world. 129 in the world. So that number is etched in my my heart. (laughs) If I look down at my phone. Fantastic number. I look down at my phone. This is 129. I'm like, oh, that's like, that was my highest ranking. It's just is, is it really? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. No, yeah. it totally is. Yeah. Like even when what I'm age watching, were you when you achieved 129? Uh, I think I was about 29, give or take. Yeah. 28, 29. And one two, so. and one two nine in the world is a great ranking for those people who don't know out there because one two nine in the world is on the verge of, and in your case, which we'll go into a little bit more, um, you're on the verge of qualifying for the major tournaments. That's the dance yeah. floor. That's where you want to be. You're going to play Wimbledon. You're going to play the U.S. Open. You're going to play the French. If you're in the if you're in the, the the 128 in the world, and of course people compete and qualify for those tournaments, and and Connor, of course, even many people in Ireland who, especially we all tuned in that day on on TG4 TG Cahar, <laughs> and we tuned into you to play um, and uh, at Manorino, yeah, Manorino still in, going at Wimbledon. You played Wimbledon and it was the first round of Wimbledon and we watched an Irishman play on the beautiful grass, the lawns of Wimbledon. And you played this guy called Manorino, who I looked up today and of course he's still playing, but his high in the world was 22. Yeah. And you took Manorino to five sets, I believe. Did you have match points? I was up 4-1, double break. So serving at 4-1 in the fifth um, to play Federer on centre court. And, Federer in uh, centre court. Got a little bit nervous. Yeah. Um, did so, you? Did, what happened to you was, what happened to all of us as tennis players? Did you tighten up a little? Yeah, I tightened up a little bit. Like, I felt more nervous in, in situations. Um, it was, you know, even for my, for my last round of qualifying, I felt unbelievably nervous um, in the last game when I was trying to serve out. Um, and it really affected my tennis. In this, I think I kind of more... Uh, so I have a tendency when I, I had a tendency when I played to be a little bit defensive um, and that can obviously 
uh, give a player time to get back into a match. So if I'm playing Man Arena I'm 4-1 and I just go, well, I'm going to batten down the hatches, no mistakes. It means that I'm probably going to take some pace off the ball. He'll get time. He'll get into a rhythm. So I said, look, I'm going to stay aggressive here. Keep doing what I'm mm. doing. And I overcooked it. Mm. Um, and the games and the points just went so fast. What was it like on, on number... Was it number one court? Uh, no. oh, I wish it was number one. Oh. No, it was court 17. Court 17. Um, what was it yeah. like on playing at Wimbledon in front of a crowd? Because it was a big crowd that day. It was great. And it built. So um, it was uh, it was kind of full of Irish flags yeah. and silly green hats there was ole you know, ole ole stuff yeah and then it was the fields of Athen Rye when yeah. I went up 4-1 at uh, Wimbledon uh, yeah <laughs> and it, like even for a few days after people were saying that, like say British players that I would know well because I haven't spent that much time at Wimbledon over the years they were said geez that was the best atmosphere on an outside court that I've ever seen we watched so it, yeah. I don't think I even fully appreciated how unusual I was like well, it's like Wimbledon like this it's like this at Wimbledon all the time yeah, you know yeah. but it was I think it was pretty it was pretty rowdy yeah. uh, and it's down it's like course 17 is down in the corner as well so um, it was comp- at full capacity people were kind of looking over yeah. uh, so it was it was fantastic I would have obviously loved to have played on centre court oh, uh, against Federer and every time I, I so Federer Manorino happened then that two days later on centre at about six o'clock and I just made sure to avoid the TV oh. you know because it's a tough when one. you were 4-1 up against Manorino did Roger Federer pass through your head? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It, w- it would have been there throughout the couple of days when you see the draw and players are trying to av- try to avoid looking ahead in the draw, mm. but you always hear and you always know. So and, yeah. and, and forget Manorino for a moment because I'm interested in your mentality. Was your thought being? Um, forget about the competitive idea of one match as it comes, boring, right? Mm. We we hear that from all sports people, and it's true. But thinking of Federer, was your thought I? cannot wait or was your thought shit I'm worried would, 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 no, I'm I, was like, wor- I can't wait it was it was it was it's actually it was more about centre court than Federer although obviously that is the perfect combination Federer and centre court and maybe if it had been somebody else or I didn't know I would have been able to to get over the line but yeah like it's just it would have been it would have been something that everybody got you know even people who don't follow tennis you know even they got me playing at Wimbledon, like so I could say I was one two nine in the world till Kingdom Come, and nobody will unless they really follow tennis really gets it. They go, yeah, that sounds oh, pretty good, but it's kind of sounds like a high number. Um, but if you say I played Wimbledon, oh, you played the guy who played Federer on centre court, sure I remember that, and maybe I would have done okay, you know, won a few games. Um, you know, it just would have been an amazing payback for me and my family who've been doing it. Yeah, and going back to my mum, you know, back in the, you know, yeah. back in the fifties, sort of playing yeah. and learning. So. Uh, Who was yeah, the I first was person you spoke to after that match? Um, so I I remember well actually um, going straight in to the locker room, having a shower, and getting um, getting a text off of my brother Ray saying we're out. Kind of there's this there's this sort of um, stand behind the, where the court is saying right there. So I went out to my family um, and. Uh, they helped so much. Actually, their reaction was so positive. Was that what this what a performance, what a match? You know how exciting was that? And it wasn't about the, it wasn't a feeling of disappointment because I was devastated. Um, and I think that actually made made the whole transition out of that match a lot easier for me. Um, so we had a laugh and a joke about it. Um, and yeah, there was just a positive feeling about the day and what had happened. Like I'd saved match points in qualifying. So, you know, I had to go, well, it mightn't happen at all. Um, so, 
you have to do that in sports. You have to sort of reframe you it. Were you were playing with house choice. money. Yeah, well, yeah, but yeah, and you have to tell yourself that and, yeah. and almost play a bit of a trick on yourself. To be positive. No point. Yeah. yeah. Ten- sport is a lot about keeping yourself positive, keeping your pecker up. It's about, yeah, it's about deluding yourself a little mm, bit and, mm. and, and telling yourself fibs until you believe them. You uh, become have, a compulsive liar to yourself. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then after, when you retire, you go, I'm stopping being a liar now, darling. I no longer lie. <laughs> So I'm just going out for a quiet pint with the lads tonight. <laughs> uh, aren't yeah. you still a liar? No, no, I gave up lying to myself years ago when, when I stopped tennis. Um, okay, what was... Do, and a quick question about that match then. After the match, did it lift your game? Did you play well in the next <coughs> month or... T- terrible. Really? Yeah. It was I high went, that you went, went into a trough. I, w- I went to a challenger event in Russia was my next tournament. Like back to the grimmest situation as a tennis player you can be in basically. And not only that, my first round was against the guy I'd beaten in the last round of qualifying at Wimbledon. <laughs> so it was just like, I'm looking at the same guy. Yeah. The stakes are so low yeah. compared to like, I'm going to make 200 quid and seven yeah. ATP points. The last thing was from a, the highlight of my career. Yeah. And uh, I'd been carrying a hip injury for that whole year and had cortisones and, and was struggling. And mm. I, I got out of Russia after that match and uh, actually trained really well for the US Open. And we might get into that. We will, yeah, because I have while, a, a but, special way of talking about yeah, that. Yeah, but um, so yeah, it was, it, it sort of, but I felt great then in the lead up to US Open practice-wise and so I felt really yeah. motivated. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a bit of a bit of a come down after, yeah. after Michael D. Higgins is actually um, on the line, the president, <laughs> and, and he wants to talk to you. And, and it's he actually, was in college with my parents, I think. So, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he knows me well. Yes, hello, Connor. Connor, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to an Irish international. And, and of course, many hello, people. Mr. President. Don't, hello, Connor. Many people don't know, of course, that I was a, quite a good player in my time. I had a vicious kick serve. Second, ta- second serve was vicious topspin kick serve, kicked out to the right. Um, well, which is unusual for me. I usually go left. But anyway, that's another point entirely. I'm intrigued because my wife, Sabine or Sabina, whatever the fuck she's called these days, um, she got me out of bed one night and she said, Connor's playing, Connor's playing. And I went, Connor Nyland? He's qualified for the US Open and he's playing Novak Djokovic. And I watched the game against Novak Djokovic and much to my horror, Connor, you had a horrific time, I understand. Now, can you be as graphic as you can, please, and explain to our listeners what happened to you? In the in the Novak Djokovic match. Uh, great question, Mr. President. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good question, wasn't it? It was great. Uh, he's a big soccer fan as well, isn't he? And rugby. And I rugby think he's a fan it. of whatever you're having yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so the US Open was, uh, again, three matches to get in. So I, I was 150 in the world, give or take. So I had to play qualifying. So I beat... Um, so I won my three matches of qualifying. Um, was down a set last round of qualies against a Dutch guy, Matway Middlecoop. Um, I was there with Gary Cahill, who was the technical director for Tennis Ireland at the time. My then girlfriend, now wife, Sheena. My brother and his wife. Um, so I had a nice sort of a support crew. Um, and again, a great atmosphere on the court for the last round of qualifying. So at Wimbledon, qualifying is off-site. It's not on the main courts because they need to protect the grass. But US Open... Uh, obviously on the hard courts was on the main site so again nice Rohampton, is it exactly qualies for Wimbledon yeah. Rohampton. um basically a cricket ground like mm. it's not anyway but um so the cricket pitch by the way there was loads the, the of cricket ra- pitches transformed into tennis courts pretty much right? yeah, yeah, yeah yeah flat ground um and there was loads of rain delays actually for the Wimbledon qualifying so I think I was due to finish on the Thursday and maybe didn't finish till the Friday there yeah. was lots of anyway uh 
the US Open, like sun was setting, you know, warm sort of summer day in, in New York. And I remember hitting the, hitting the return um, and just going down to my knees, the same as at Wimbledon, just that initial reaction. It, like like what you see when Bjorn Borg wins Wimbledon, like me qualifying, was that like that kind of reaction? Because yeah. it's sort of my pinnacle, you know? So um, yeah, an amazing it's couple of days. fucking awesome, that's what it is. Yeah, so I don't know, it, was, it was great. So went up to, um, to the gang and you know just such a such a rich kind of emo- a feeling of emotion um that I'd never had before and will never have again probably but uh it was um it was amazing but my friend John Doran uh, who I would have played Davis Cup with got married in in New York in Manhattan that weekend um so we went to that on the Friday evening obviously like wasn't drinking or anything um but got a text um all, all of a sudden got like four or five pings on my phone the draw had come out for the main draw uh, and it said, every message said, Djokovic, man. Ten, ten <laughs> Djokovic, smiley Djokovic, faces. Djokovic, Djokovic, ten, ten, ten smiley faces. faces, yeah. So it was, uh, so then I knew, when, oh my God. You're going to play Novak Djokovic, was it on Louis Armstrong? It was on centre, uh, which is, what's that called again? Arthur Ashe. Arthur Ashe. Ar- Louis Armstrong is, is the sort of like, yeah, the second one. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was the main one. Um, oh my God, the hairs are standing up my Arthur Ashe. In two days time. And that, it's the biggest stadium in the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Stadium. There's 22,000 seat um so i was really happy it was my initial reaction like i was playing well enough where i might have been able to i would have been very competitive with somebody 30 40 50 in the world like manarina who was 50 in wimbledon but i just went you know i missed out on the big course at wimbledon this is amazing this is sort of you know the heavens have said look and you can the tennis gods have said look at you can go and play on your Mm -hmm. big court now um but i fucking woke up that night unbelievably sick puking everything the whole the whole lot um and i was like and obviously the thought has crossed my mind like was that sorry he's on the line again oh sorry, here, he, Connor, here he is Connor, well, wait wait wait, wait, wait was, it, was, it, was it food poisoning or what i've been intrigued by this because i had a dodgy indian last week <laughs> and what was it i put it like this was it both ends both ends yeah right that's enough said yeah it was uh thanks michael d it was there was a hurricane in new york that weekend um and it's actually funny it was hurricane irene and the, the mother of the bride was called irene that weekend at the wedding we were at but anyway um there was uh, <laughs> off color um, there was um <laughs> there was um uh, a hurricane loads of restaurants in manhattan basically was shut so they they closed the bridges so michael bloomberg i think was the mayor at the time they closed the bridges and it'll be not that bad it was literally just like a really really rainy night um it didn't really hit new york but anyway as a precaution they shut it down and loads of restaurants were shut down so that night, um, we had gone out for a little bit of a, a little bit of a bite to eat. Um, this was the day after the we- the wedding, I think, and um, had had some food, and that was the night. Then I woke up. Yeah. Really, Do you really know sick. what it was? As a matter of interest, was it prawns or anything like I, that? No, I, I, I think I'd had. I think it was. It was actually pretty tasty. Whatever it was, I think it was like it was a pork salad or yeah. something. Um, and, and did was, other people get sick? No, just you. So that's what I was like, was it nervous, whatever, but I, it, I would I know, feel your bo- nervous. I no, was happy about your it. Your body was totally drained, right? Yeah, I was, yeah, I mean, it, the matches hadn't been, hadn't been that physical and stuff. It was just one of those things. A few people got sick at that tournament. It's ironic because it's like, it's New York and yeah. it's, you know. So uh, out of 100, what par were you when you played the number one player in the world, yeah. Novak Djokovic? I'd say I was at 20, 20 out of 100, oh, come 30 on. out of 100. I wouldn't have played if it was, uh, I was green. I had no nothing in me you at were all. that low? Yeah, I was, I was sick. Um, and 
yeah, I obviously was always going to go and pl- take the court. Um, but like my warm up, you do a 30 minute warm up yeah. before your match. Yeah. And I got sick all over the court after Did my you? 30 minute warm up. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> so it was like, and I was just like, is this, this is like a sick joke, you know? It was yeah. unbelievable. Had you ever been sick before? Uh, I got sick once at a Futures event mm. and I had to pull out and, you know, mm. one of those things mm. uh, in London. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it was just weird. So, um, and then Djokovic had had a little bit of a shoulder problem, I think, in the lead up to this. And apparently he had requested a Wednesday start because usually you play Monday or Tuesday mm. first round. And he was given the Tuesday start, had apparently requested a Wednesday. And I'm hearing that he's, you know, he's maybe struggling a little bit. And it's like, he's no idea what he's dealing with with me. Mm. Uh, and then I saw him in the locker room before we went out. And like, if you've seen a lot of these guys up close, like they're way taller than you think. They're way stronger looking than you think. He's six foot three. He's he just looked great. He had his earphones in. He was doing these warm up exercises, and I'm like, this guy could beat me, but wearing a pair of jeans. Do you know what I mean? I was I felt so bad, um, but I said, look, it, I'll go out um, and and see what happens. And as I walked out, there was a guy from ESPN there, um, Tom Rinaldi. He's kind of an ESPN the tennis guy, and he's there with a the microphone in the tunnel going out onto Arthur Ashe. This is like my whole you know, the thing I'd always dreamed about. And he's like, hey, Connor, how are you feeling? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, fine, feel good. Yeah, yeah, ready to go. Like, no idea. I could be running off the court in five minutes. So walked out and it was the best, probably, if funny, better than probably the, even the experience at Wimbledon. I heard all these people, these, these Irish accents, shouting down the stands, like, Connor, I'm from Ballina. Connor, I'm from Mullingar. Yeah. It was like the coolest thing. Oh, yeah. Um, but I remember thinking, geez, I wish I could go out and deliver see. Deliver for you. Deliver. Yeah. And, but the thing is, I was probably never even going to come close to winning a set. But it was more that I couldn't just go out and go, and, go and after compete, it. Compete, compete. Yeah. Um, and do, my, I, you know, do myself justice. Mm. Um, and obviously, Djokovic has this incredible reputation for being a returner. So mm. he stands up first point. And he bangs an ace down the middle. And I'm like, oh my God, I thought this guy was a returner. Mm. You know, he's got a massive serve as well. Because mm. you don't really know what these guys are like until you're on court with mm. them. Um, and aside from my sickness, there's a couple of things that he was doing that he probably would have done anyway, which was on his return to serve, like every return, even off first serves of mine, felt like they were he was hitting it onto my toes. Mm. Like I was, I was under pressure right from the start. Mm. Uh, and obviously, as I said, his first serve, he was putting his putting it in all, all every spot he wanted, getting control of the point. And once you're um, kind of moving against him, he never lets you back in. So I've watched it back a couple of times, and I actually did. It looks okay, the mm, match. Mm. I mean, he he kind of rolls through it pretty well. But luckily, I got a game, mm. and I do a little celebration when mm. I win the game and stuff mm. because uh, just that you don't want to be six love. So anyway, it's, mm. I think it was six love five one. I retired. Mm. Uh, I was looking up at my at the player's box. My mum had flown over um, and I had a couple of friends from Ireland, George McGill and Owen Heavey were there as well in the player's box. And I just looked up and my mum just kind of looked at me and went, just sort of, I think maybe just leave it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. yeah. She I, I, she knew what I wanted her to say and she was like, yeah, just that, that's probably enough. Yeah. And uh, so that was it. So yeah, oh. it, was a, it was a weird, cruel um, sort of situation. Um, but at the same time, it's still kind of a cool story. And, yeah. you know, I probably would have got out lost. And presumably one, when you one, came one, to one the anyway. net to shake hands with Djokovic, that was the first time he was aware that you you were ill. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it, it, he would have been. It was funny because I, I, I obviously went up to him. And usually when you retire from a match, you know, you explain and they go through somewhat pantomime 
oh, are you okay? And yeah. oh, that's terrible. Yeah. And, oh, I don't like to win like this. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So yeah. He just stared blankly at me. Yeah. Which is he? weird. Yeah. He just, I just said, listen, I'm, I'm sick. I've had food poisoning. I think I've been sick for two or three days. He just went like that. He just stared back at me. He never spoke. And I was like, wow, that was mm. kind of weird. Um, and yeah, so that was it. Now I did see him at, um, in the chain rooms in the Aussie Open in January. I didn't see him, um, not in the same orbit, but in terms of the, the rest of the year, you know, he would have been playing, I guess, World Tour finals and stuff that yeah. I obviously wasn't there. So I didn't see him again till, till, till Melbourne. And I walked into the locker room and he was sort of there and he looked up and he said, oh, hey, how, are you feeling better? <laughs> I felt better like the Wednesday, like it was four months ago. Um, oh, God, so the strange kind of world of professional sports. Yeah. You might so at, least he, at least he remembered me and what, said, well, that, said them. But yeah, so that was, so that was good kind of memory. interesting. Yeah. Good memory. Um, on my radio show, and I had a radio show on Today FM, on, um, I was, it was Sunday morning show. It was called The Sunday Roast. And I spoke to James McGee one day. Mm. And James on, on foot of James McGee is another Irish professional tennis player who also made around 125 in the world, I, I, I believe. And uh, but James, you put, him, you put him ahead of me there now. He was, I think uh, he, he was, was one four five. Was he <laughs> one two nine? One two nine, bitch. Um, so James wrote a very interesting blog um, about what the realities of life as a professional tennis player, which I'm yeah, sure you're aware good. of, Connor. Yeah. And I want you to try and take me inside that world if you can. So maybe I'll, I'll ask you about. What could you imagine as, let's say, your grimmest day? What's the, your, you know, the grimmest day as a professional tennis player? Oh, wow. Um, Try and put the, me in Well, it. there was one when I first injured my hip in 2008 was in, um, I was just kind of getting into the, starting to win matches regularly at the challenger level. Um, and it was in a place called Banja Luka in, in Bosnia. And it was mid-September, late September. So the kind of, the winter was in the air a little bit. It was starting, it was a very dark kind of, there was fog kind of for the whole week and it had basically rained since we got there. And it was getting to a point where the tournament felt under pressure that we were actually going to, um, um, they were going to get the tournament finished. So they put us out um, when the courts were maybe not quite uh, dry and I slipped um, in the second game uh, going out wide to a serve, one of those Michael D. Higgins second serve kickers. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And, uh, improv comedy. Improv comedy. Here we yeah, go. Yeah. And he, uh, uh, so as soon as I went out, my, my leg basically went up from under me and I tore uh, the cartilage in my hip that I obviously, I'd obviously later learned after an MRI, tore, tore the cartilage in my hip. But I basically was carried off course. It starts raining. I'm kind of, you know, I know I'm done. I'm I'm in the middle of, of Bosnia. I'm going to have to take a train for three or four hours because that was how we got there and there was no other way out. So I ended up, going in for treatment in this sort of like tent structure that they had that was supposed to be the, the kind of the medical room and the the doctor sort of put out a cigarette and kind of half blew it in my face and looked down and went, yeah, you've hurt your hip. And I was like, okay, thanks. Uh, that had dinner that night and an awful lot of pain, took a couple of painkillers and then had to get like a four hour train. I can't remember where we got, where, but what the, what's the cap? Is it a Sarajevo? I can't remember. He's back from, from Banja Luka and then like two flights back to Dublin knowing my hip was sore because it was getting sore and uh anybody feeling grim oh yeah. that is grim yeah <laughs> and, um, that's james james mcgee grim yeah and uh was then came back it's far got, from got the world the of private jets and massages on uh you know with yeah. 15 yeah. physiotherapists so, it was brutal. so then i was out for three or four months then got the results in the mri the doctor sort of you know looked at the mri said uh yeah you've torn your you've torn your your um your cartilage that's three months 
and sort of delivered it quite sort of yeah. abruptly. And I was like, oh, that's because this is my career. I was like, oh, okay. Because yeah. I, I was at pretty much a career high. Mm. I'm sorry, I just won a challenger yeah. for context. So yeah. um, I was kind of getting there. Yeah. Um, so that was grim. <laughs> yeah, no, it is grim. I feel the mood's changed here. Come it on, has. Let's pick it back no, but up. In a good, no, 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 we don't need to pick it back stuff. up. Look, you're not a tennis, you're not a <laughs> professional sportsman right now. You don't have to keep your pecker up all the time. This is art. I don't have to delete, delete, art, my, baby. delete, no, delete do, myself we anymore. We do light and shade here in art. We do light and shade. We do happy bits at the beginning and we do sad bits. That's what the people want. Crying and laughter. Plus calls from Michael D in improv comedy. No, well said. It is grim. And oh boy, that is the grim life of a professional sportsman. And and I mean, you talked about it at challenger level, but of course it happens at at senior, at, at uh, the, the elite level as well, at the top, at the thing where you watch Andy and his hip, his... Yeah, I mean, the thing about like, when you watch Wimbledon on TV, like you're constantly getting the good story and you're listening to the interview from the guy who won and the guy who's lost is going into the locker room and getting a train. You're probably getting on the tube to Heathrow and then flying back. You know what I mean? That yeah. night, whereas you're watching the build-up for the next round that the guy who won's got. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's packaged in a way, and that's almost how we fall in love with sport and with yeah. tennis. Is you're kind of you're 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 presented with the winner um, and the great story and the Djokovic Nadal Federer career, yeah. and and obviously the what happens underneath is is a little more um, yeah. uh, you know hidden, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So. You used an interesting um, word there that triggered a question that I wanted to ask you, and it was fall in love with tennis. Um, I presume you've read. Uh, the book that we've all read, presumably. Yeah. Open. I even know, well, oh, know, know the book you're going to say. Open. <laughs> yeah. By an, I read it in one day. I read, I read it, it in about one day as well. I read it on the flight back from Australia in open, losing and qualifying. Read it basically in one sitting. It's a 24-hour flight. Um, and I basically, I, I bought it in Melbourne Airport flying back from Aussie Open as yeah. a pro tennis player and read it in, in, in basically 24 hours. For those of you out there who don't know the book Open, it's called Open by Andre Agassi, who is a number one tennis player in the world and um, a, a winner of all four of the, the, the slams. One of the only players in the world to do that. And it cre- incredibly, Agassi tells a very open and honest story. But part of his story is he reveals in the book that he hated tennis and that tennis became torture for him from a very young age and how his father bullied him into playing tennis and how his father's attitude and hitting all these millions of balls made him despise tennis. One of the most beautiful scenes in the book is at the beginning, Andre is at the end of his career. Um, He's in the US Open. He's played a, a match uh, against the, the Cypriot Baghdatis or the, the, the Baghdatis yep. and they fought it, fought it out for four hours. And uh, they end up in the locker room together. Andre wins. They end up in the locker room together. Uh, their bodies are both destroyed because I think Baghdad is, is, is a little uh, getting older as well. And Andre is reaching the end of his career. Their bodies are destroyed and it's only the second or third round. Destroyed and they're lying on treatment beds and they can hardly climb up on the treatment beds and they're getting a massage. And on the television is a replay of Andre Agassi versus Baghdadis. Agassi looks to the side. On the other treatment bed is Baghdadis who's receiving the same treatment, like war veterans. They put out their hand across the treatment bed and they hold hands as they watch each other beat the crap out of each other. It was just like me and Djokovic after the show. <laughs> Improv comedy. Improv yeah. comedy. And, uh, and, and it was just such a beautiful moment of these two people beaten to, de- to death and beating, having beaten each other to death on the court, then just kind of in solidarity after the court. But yeah, fall in love with... Book. Pardon me? Book. It's an incredible, incredible book because it's so honest. But fall in love with tennis, and that's what I wanted to ask you. This is the most peculiar question in a way. Did you love tennis? Yeah, I, I love. I loved it as a as a kid. I think what happens is it, it starts to become 
you have to practice when you don't want to practice. And that starts at about 11 or 12. And that's the difficult bit. I think um, most people don't say, dad, I want to go and learn tennis. You know, usually it's a parent who's sort of, it's there in the family. Um, I loved the competition element. I love playing the tournaments. You know, I love winning, but it's it's the five or six days a week that you have to go and do your an hour and a half of drills. That is hard to love. And sometimes it's a bit like doing your homework or learning your violin or piano stuff. There's a, it's a drudgery about it. So anybody, there are probably some very lucky people who enjoy every part of it. Like there's, there's the gym part of it. There's the injury prevention stuff. That is unfortunately part of it. We all love watching Wimbledon finals day and having strawberries and cream, but that's not necessarily tennis. It's, you know, do you love travel? Do you like the 24 hour train out of Bosnia? Do you, you know, is there a way to enjoy that? So there's so many different facets to what is tennis. Do you, you like know? doctors that smoke and blow it out in your face? Do you like that? <laughs> exactly. I mean, because if you do, tennis is up for you. What, for you. Have you been to Bosnia? <laughs> Maybe on the verge of winter. Not quite winter, but winter is coming. Um, if you had to have an injury, would you like to fucking bust your hip? Let's go for it. It's balls, testicles, shins or hips. I like hips, please. Okay, we're going to break your hip in Bosnia with a doctor that smells like fucking Marlboro. <laughs> This is your life, bitch. I like it. I want to be a tennis player. You know all that stuff with private jets and uh, hangers on? I don't want any of that. I want busted hips in Bosnia. It's more nuanced, Mario. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So listen, like it's, and that's, I suppose, and that's Andre who's had, like, our, like he's had the best of, of, of everything in terms of he, he went straight into the top 100 at 16, 17. He never played a Futures or Challengers, you know, Challenger event parody in his life, mm. you know. So he had, that's him hating tennis from actually, he does, he's from the world of private jets. Um, so, yeah, mm. it's it's a challenging one. Like individual sports, I think they put a lot on you, you know. I think the team sports, you have that, that element of you're coming to training every day. Did you feel, though, throughout your career, there were points where you said to yourself, fuck, I still love this game? Or did you lose the love for it? Um, Oh, yeah, definitely. um, Yeah, that level of it's hard to have that level of enthusiasm um, about the sport when you're when you're dealing with so much. The reason I say that, Connor, is uh, have you ever picked up on I think it's pretty much Nadal and Federer, but mainly Federer. And you do pick up on the idea from the way he talks and the way other people talk about him in the way they, the way they seem to honestly talk about him, that he seems to love hitting the tennis ball. Wouldn't you? If you hit a pit like him. <laughs> I mean, again, the environments that he's hitting the tennis ball in, you know, um, it's he has he doesn't even play a full schedule. I know, obviously, we're talking probably two years now since he's but he still has to do his hour and a half and two hours and three hours and four hours and injury prevention and do the lifts and the the, yeah no he does he does but I suppose the thing you have to 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 notice about those guys is the teams that they have around I was over at Wimbledon on Saturday watching Nadal play um, Sonego from Italy and I looked down at Nadal's players box and it was so there's about eight seats and there's two rows so, you know, there's there's nearly 20 people in his team. There was his sister there, his mum there. He had his trainers, he had his coaches, he had his hitting partners, he had his mates. Um, so he's going round. It's like a party when he got rocked up to the tournament. You know, whereas when I played Wimbledon, I was with me and, a, and a, you know, and a, or some of the other slams, me and a coach. When you start, once you start to hit that, that, that big time level, you can afford a massive team and it becomes a lot more fun. Yeah. You know, and that's the social element to it. Why 
two questions. Try and answer this as clearly as you can. Why don't Ireland produce tennis players? And does does it necessarily take money or a certain amount of money to become a tennis player in Ireland? Um, oh, why doesn't Ireland produce tennis players? We're, we're again, we're probably still a little bit one foot in, one foot out. A lot of our players, like you, it's very hard to to go and like I remember as a. Indian um, player friend of mine who who was in Millfield with me and then ended up having a good doubles career and he used to always say you, you can't be Roger Federer and Albert Einstein like yeah. you can't you can't you can't be a pro tennis player and be trying to make get 600 in your leaving you know I think we probably asked that of a lot of our kind of we have a bit of a, a culture of that in Ireland like you know, if you look at a lot of the top players, they're kind of homeschooled from 13, 14. Yeah. Um, they're based in, in, in academies. But why are they? Lots of, uh, so in other words, academies? Yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the players are, are go to academies at 13 mm. or 14. Are um, you saying, for example, jump to the chase, are you saying we could create an academy in Ireland? Yeah, um, but the infrastructure, usually the academies are in places where tournament infrastructures are around there as mm. well. So like we just started to put on a few more kind of European junior world ranking events, but we used to have none. Mm. We don't have a main tour event here. So we're a little bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a tennis outpost. And, mm. and also there's not a lot of visibility. So like if we had a big time summer tournament before Wimbledon, you know, like they do in, in the UK, there'd be a, a social element to it. Players would be able to come and watch with their families. There might be wild cards. I think that would make a big difference. Um, but essentially I think we just have a bit of an attitude of well sure do your leaving see how you're getting on maybe try on the tour mm. then what about golf though Connor? there is a, there is Ireland produce golfers well you can become a top class golfer and go to college in the states because most of them have done it yeah. in tennis it doesn't seem that way there are a handful of guys in the top 100 like a John Isner uh, who have gone to college in the states but Kevin most, Anderson Kevin Anderson nice by the way John obviously 6'10 Kevin 6'8 that's true probably would have done pretty well with that serve whether he'd gone to college or not they're anomalies so um, obviously golf it's one of the biggest countries in the world in terms of for for courses Mm. you know we just have a culture we do yeah and we've got a real competition culture in golf in Ireland as well can I tell you a statistic you might know um, might surprise you. Yeah. I, I learned this from. Sorry, I nodded and I realised this is radio. radio. Yeah, well, it's a podcast. Uh, we hate radio. Um, <laughs> radio scum. Uh, um, Ireland has the highest amount of tennis clubs per capita in the world. What? <laughs> wow, I didn't know. Well, that. I tell you where that where that come from. Well, you, I, I, between yourself and myself, you'll kind of know. Do you ever wander down when you were young? Do you ever wander down Rathmines or Ranelagh and Ratgar and, and somebody went, yeah, we're going to um, Mount Mountbatten Tennis Club. What? Mountbatten Tennis? I've never heard of Mountbatten Tennis Club. Yeah, do you not know? It's beside Granville Tennis Club, Heathville Tennis Club and, and Chopcott Tennis Club. <laughs> Where are all these tennis clubs coming from? Ranelagh, all these places, Dublin. It's just full of tennis clubs. Yeah. There are so many tennis clubs. Yeah. Why? Because of the Victorian heritage. And the squares. We were yeah. the second city of the empire. Yeah. And the Brits built all the tennis clubs in Ireland. That's why there are so yeah. many tennis um, courts and clubs. And, and why we had Wimbledon champions in the, you know, the, the, the 1890s and stuff. That's right. obviously it hadn't spread around the world yeah, yet. that's um, right. Uh, but we had we Irish had, Wimbledon champions. But we, had, but we had the Irish Open, you know, in the 60s and 70s, yeah. Billie Jean King and Rod yeah, Laver would have yeah. won it. And we lost that um, in the sort of early 70s. And obviously we haven't been producing players really since then. So mm. 
it's multifaceted like it's also it's hard to enjoy tennis in nine degrees you know uh, you know which is what, it, what the temperature it is at Ireland most most of the year so it's sort of um you know we need indoor courts it's we don't have a lot of those um so there's a few things up against us but i think if we had a big marquee event i think that would be really good and then some a lower tier junior competition below that i think that would help Mm-hmm. Uh, There's probably four or five reasons, you know. Yeah. So. Let, let's go through a couple of uh, quick fire questions. Um, what do you think of? Oh, yeah. So one of the questions. So when I meet for casual games with friends, and uh, what are you laughing? I don't know. What? I make people laugh. I'm funny. You think I'm fucking funny? What's so fucking funny, Connor? One, two, fucking nine. Fuck you, James McGee. One, fucking two, eight. Now. Uh, what I mean, How dare you? he's laughing at my beard. I'm growing a beard, <laughs> folks, and, and a lot of people are slagging me about the beard. I think it's actually working. Jane, beard good? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. Um, he's paid to say that, but anyway, it was casual, uh, casual games with friends. I don't know why it made me giggle. Because that was your beard. It was your the beard. real world. That's the real world, Connor. <laughs> We're not all of us are breaking our hips in Bosnia. Some of us have casual games with friends who we love. Right. Anyway, casual game with friends, class three. Maybe once I was verging on the class. last time I saw you, by the way, you were dressed fully in Bjorn Borg kit in Borg character. Remember that at Stratford? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, That's right. right. I played in a charity event where I was dressed as Bjorn Borg. Um, but the um, the casual game with friends and class three-ish. And um, after before the game, you'd normally have idle chat. How are you? And when some tournament is on like Wimbledon, you'd go, so did you see Nadal or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And you'd be chatting and, and maybe it was the semifinals or whatever. And of course, it would just go, how the fuck did they do it? How the fuck did they do it? I don't mean the shots. I mean, how the fuck did they go six hours and then sometimes the next day or maybe a day later, another six hours at the peak? And, you know, we're not going to go any names here, Connor. But like, what do you think? I, I'll, be clear, I'll be clear with you. I don't really believe it. I don't believe it. Personally, I don't believe that, that, that players can operate, a human being can operate at that tilt and then come out and do it again. Yeah, I mean, they are breezing through their first couple of rounds, generally those top guys. Um, and I often found when you were playing at a level that was slightly higher than you, so whatever, let's say when I was ranked 250 and I was playing a guy 100, even if the match was four and four, I'd be exhausted after it. Because I think there's takes that extra mental capacity um, and you're just that little bit more stretched. So I think these guys are generally playing guys who are worse than them. Now, obviously, they have their big battles and it's six hours and that, but that's generally they're falling over the line. It's the semifinals or the finals. They're competing for the biggest prizes. They've had it. They've got a physio. They've got a doctor there. They're probably walking the line a little bit in terms of they're probably do are using all sorts of supplements mm. probably you know that aren't illegal because it's not worth it for them to, to mm. probably do that. Mm. Um, so. Like Andy Murray's when he when he goes out on court, he's got this um, this drink, this like silvery sort of drink that I've been watching him drink for ten years. Yeah. Um, by the way, at US Open, he sent his doctor over to my hotel room um, when he heard I was sick and gave me this silvery drink. Did he? It's like it's, it's like this rehydrating thing, and I had it, it was delicious. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I, I wish I drank this every 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 match. Uh, on his bottle. He has written down um, like a line and that says like first set. So basically he's been told to drink to th- that amount for the first set. Yeah. And then there's another line under it, second set. So like that's how how detailed it is. Like these guys are 
pre-match, during the match, and post-match, doing yeah. everything perfectly. Yeah. And was the drink gen- delicious? It was really tasty. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he, yeah, his 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 doctor guy. He didn't last long. He was there for for maybe with, with him for about a year. He had like an F one sort of a background. This English oh. guy, um, but yeah, it was. Um, so yeah, I anyway. I, I, I look at, for me like if I look at Nadal, he was winning ATP matches at fifteen. Like that's ridiculous. He wasn't, you know, on drugs and he was fifteen. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like he's just been tracking and trending, of being a, a freak. Mm. Uh, was training for an hour and a half when he was seven with his uncle and mad stuff. He was hitting with Carlos Moya, number one in the world, when he was 13, mm. taking sets off him when he was 14. So, like, he's just, you know, I just think he's a freak. He's a freak, yeah. That's what I think, yeah. genuinely. I find it difficult to understand as well with Nadal, for people who don't know out there, uh, not to passionize you or anything, but I, the uh, Nadal was a right-hander. He was a right-handed tennis player until his uncle Tony, or his, dad, yeah, his uncle, his Tony, uncle yeah. Tony said, try left. Yeah. You'll win more money. <laughs> Left-handed tennis players are more unusual. They have a, they're trickier to play against for the majority of right-handed tennis players. They can swing it out wide, and uh, and also meant that his he, backhand is like a forehand too. Yeah, so he was like able to successfully become ambidextrous. It's weird. Yeah, so you see him after the match signing his, aut- his autographs on the side of the court with the right with hand. The right You're hand. like, what's going on here? How extraordinary! And he plays football right-footed, I think, as well. So it's yeah. very, it's 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 a strange. It's a re- it's a weird one. Um, Incredible. So, but it just shows that like, Tony Natal was just like a a, a a bit of a sort of psycho, really, in terms yeah. of like he was he would make him uh, like he'd never throw his racket or anything. I think that Tony was really sort yeah. of tough on him, discipline wise, and that's why he's become such a yeah. mental giant. Yeah. Nick Kyrgios, good for the game, or or listen, needs to get his act together, or needs to be censored. C- censured. Yeah. So he. So I was. I said I was over there on Saturday, and I had tickets for Centre Court. Which was, and when the draw came out for the day, I was gutted because Kyrgios and everybody else was gutted because Kyrgios was on court one. So basically, that was the only ticket to have on Saturday night. So I think that probably tells you all you need to know. Like, he is good for the game. Um, he is entertaining. He's interesting. It could be an absolute car crash, what you're watching, or it could be an amazing performance, but you're watching. And I think that is something that we lack a bit in tennis. And it's authentic kind of madness from him. You know, I think there's some guys out there and they might wear the bandana and sort of try and be charismatic. But I think he's got something that you do want to go. This guy is a little bit mental. And I think that's kind of interesting. So I think he's good for the game. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. He obviously crossed the line. Yeah. yeah. So, but no, that's just it. wanted your take on it. King Richard. Have I, you forgot seen it was, I forgot it was quick fire. Sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> it was medium sized fire. <laughs> King Richard. Any, have you seen it? No. No, I trained with the Williams sisters for a couple of weeks. Go of, on, Bob's how were they? When I was when we were all about 16, 17. Yeah, do you remember their and attitudes? I met, or? And I met Richard there. He was Did hanging you? around and he shook my hand. And uh, we, yeah, we were. They were. I think Venus was about five in the world, and she, and Serena was about twenty five in the world. So they were only like sixteen and yeah. eighteen. I was like some like you know Irish kid over there for a couple of weeks training. Um, and I actually remember again my my dad saying. Serena's much better than Venus and that wouldn't have been sort of the the common take at the time because Venus was at five um, and yeah so we trained with them and they had the you know the cool beads that they had yeah. in their hair at the, at the time and yeah they were they, we did we did a few sessions with them um, but it's funny they have this little um kind of world around them and obviously they're not twins but they do kind of everything together so it was a lot it seemed like it was a lot of fun what we you know what they were you know the, the way they were 
living their life. You know, they were training together. They had a big, um, they had a big support team around mm. them. Um, and yeah, they were already, you see they'd the, already made it. Could you see how they hit the ball? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was big. I mean, again, I suppose what their first serve, they they can get it up to about 120 miles an hour, which is which is obviously quick. Um, we uh, we did a lot of just practice drills with them and stuff. Um, but but remember Richard coming up to me um, uh, before the before my session with Serena and saying it's your turn today, boy. <laughs> like, he, he knew kind of everyone wants to hit with them, right? And he was just there, so he was very kind of in the background. But no, it was uh, it was cool, interesting. And did you meet Nick Bolletieri? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. He was on court yeah, with Nick yeah, a few yeah, times. Yeah. Always shirtless, you know. Yeah. Never wore a shirt in his life. Yeah. Um, and big smile. And really, sort of charismatic and charming. Yeah. When he went on court, he just kind of everybody just started felt really motivated, and he just wanted to kind of yeah. impress him, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's just he's an amazing track record. I know, incredible. We uh, we're 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 nearly finished the the thing. We have another caller actually. It's Davy Fitz. Davy Fitz is on the line. So uh, say hello to Davy Fitz, Connor. Hello, Davy Fitz. Oh, put on your um, headphones there, Connor, because Davy Fitz. I think he's in a car. I think uh, he's on the way traveling. from. He, he's on Limerick to Clare, yeah, so he's yeah, in your. You think he's passing near your home in Limerick? <laughs> So, uh, Davy Fitz, how are you, Davy? Hey, Davy. How's it going, Connor? It's Davy Fitz here. I'm on the road and I'm listening to you. Great. On the podcast there. Great stuff. Yeah. Look at, I heard you talking about tennis players in Ireland. Yeah. Well, look at, I, I've been thinking, and I'll tell you what we can do. Mm. You give Irish tennis players helmets. Okay. And you tell them they can jump over the net so they can. Okay. With them sticks. And start getting stuck into each other, okay. hell for leather, on the two sides of the net. Sure, it's all the same over in Wimbledon. They have a field. They have Hawkeye. It's all there waiting for us. Just, oh, the only thing that's missing is the violence, Sorties. <laughs> sure, anyway. It's on look, grass as well. It's just me touch there, Connor. Oh, that was great. Thanks, Davey. Thanks, Davey. Oh, brilliant. Good, yeah, all good on, points. All on good grass, points. on Hawkeye, he has a point. Yeah. Let us let them hit each other with the rackets. Yeah, he could be on the Wimbledon committee next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your favourite female tennis player of all time? Sellers. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> the Seagulls are back. Yeah. Oh, no. They uh, obviously had uh, that memory of, 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 of you know, following her career before she made it. And then, um, yeah, I'll always remember she lost the final of Wimbledon to Graf, I think it was. And I remember my mum saying, oh, she might never win it. And I was thinking, actually, oh, she's won nine slams or something. Yeah. She's 19, of course she will. And I don't think she ever did. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I like Stella. She was an incredible player and could have gone on to, you know, have the most slams ever if, if she hadn't been stabbed by a crazed fan, which is That's right. unbelievable. Uh, I'm a bit of a tennis aficionado um, as in a person who loves tennis and is a, is a student of tennis. So I have to contribute to this argument as well. I'll vote for my favorite. This favorite, favorite uh, is actually Chris Everett. Mm. Uh, she was a little bit. I, 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 she was um, a little bit before my time. I don't remember um, kind of any of her matches. Very late mm. stage, you know, starting to starting to I, watch. But I, what was it, uh, 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 well, Chris? Well, two things. One is because she her her beauty and her her beauty and her Miss America personality belied this incredibly steely mm. character who was so, so ballsy. She didn't miss. She didn't miss, but she, she also had missed. guts, guts. Yeah. And I loved her, um, I loved, loved I loved her right? rivalry with Martina, which was not one-sided. It was two-sided. Yeah. She destroyed her and on, on clay. 
and Martina <laughs> right. got the better of her on grass. Yeah, but yeah. Martina and her, if you look at the head to head, it's yeah, pretty yeah. equal. Yeah, okay. they were a real rivalry. Yeah. Okay, your favorite male tennis player of all time. Uh, my, as a as a kid, it was it was Edberg was was kind of the first Wonderful. guy. He was just so um, kind of clean cut and the classic serve and volley. And I went over and watched junior Wimbledon um, my, Gina played junior Wimbledon I think in 89 or 90 and I remember we got to watch Edberg practice which was like the coolest coolest thing ever so Edberg was my was my kind of guy when I was a kid but Nadal I think I've just is probably the most impressive maybe sports person I think I've ever seen at this stage um, I just I, I, it's just his his capacity to sort of um his, his mental capacity out there just to mm. sort of suffer almost. And figure things out. Yeah, and figure mm. things out. Mm. I just, I've never, I've never, I've never seen anybody compete like that on every shot for, you know, for 20 mm. years he's been doing it. Like, he's just never put a foot wrong. Like, okay. he's never, like, it's just, it's incredible. So, yeah, it just, he's the most impressive. Okay, uh, get to me now, Connor. And uh, so my, for mysticism and, and beauty and enigmatic and uh, coolness, style um uh for iconic iconography i'll go if it started it started it started going with bjorn borg okay uh because borg was the reason i started hitting a ball off a tennis wall i started hitting hundreds and thousands of balls off a tennis wall because i saw him and i put two hands on the racket yeah and I remember I put two hands on the racket because he did it, and so did millions. You of like us. the two two-handers, but you have a one-hander, right? No, I have a I have a one-handed, um, yeah, one-handed. But I used to have two-handers. Okay. So then I got fat and started drinking, and you don't move the extra yard. <laughs> no, the you know yourself. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It was that doctor that blew in my face. He went, <laughs> go back I, to the one hand. Slipped. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, because I, I used to see the ball well from the the right the, the backhand side, and I used to hit it really well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then just went to college, stopped playing, and then I started putting one hand okay. out. So um, oh, yeah, I miss again. I miss Borg. Borg. I miss Borg McEnroe yeah. again. It's a shame, but I, yeah, he's just just the, that he's that, that but, gear, the the outfit, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, the feel so iconic. It's just class. But the but my favorite tennis player of all time is without doubt Roger Federer, mm, yeah. for all the reasons that David Foster Wallace wrote about in his yeah. famous article in the New York Times. Which if you don't, if you, anybody out there who wants to just put in David Foster Wallace. Um, Federer as a religious experience it's a lovely um, uh, essay by David Foster Wallace on, on the beauty of a, a normal person watching Roger Federer play There's so a- I will go with Roger Federer but I have a final question for you mm. who do you think is the greatest tennis player of all time it's a related question but maybe not the same answer you can go for Nadal if you want yeah I, I think it's um, it's probably it's, it's two slams now between Nadal and Djokovic although 14 of those are at Roland Garros for Nadal which does skew the numbers mm. a little bit he's obviously the best ever on mm. clay Djokovic still has you know I think he's got a couple in him it's hard to know like I could be I, it could be Djokovic at the end yeah. of it all yeah. um, but I'm going to give the edge to Nadal um, uh, but I think this tournament and the next six months could sort of you know play out a lot um, on the subject of essays there's a great essay oh. Um, by a guy called Brian Phillips. He's an American writer. He's uh, He wrote a, a really funny article on Wimbledon a few years ago. It's called The Death's Head of Wimbledon. Um, and it's about his experience as a as a as uh, an American writer, sort of finding himself in this incredibly weird um, experience uh, covering Wimbledon and just it, seeing it from the inside and sort of the seeing it from the journalist sort of um, bunker as opposed to watching it beautifully packaged on TV 
um, and it's very funny. So um, yeah, if you're into, if you want some 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 homework after more this, porn. you've got two uh, more tennis porn. It's tennis porn. <laughs> and finally, sorry for nearly injuring you that day in that uh, exhibition. We nearly, played. you did. My yeah. ankles never never recovered. So uh, would you want to tell her? So we were playing a charity um, a charity event, and we had played. Uh, I was playing a, a set against a friend of mine, Barry King, and you were umpiring, right, yeah. for that match um, with a few characters thrown in. Yeah. And then at the end, uh, we finished the set and then me and Mario were having were having a hit as well. Obviously, you know, it was a good crowd. Um, uh, everyone looking over the balcony. And Mario, you um, badly shanked a backhand. What? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you hit a shot or whatever, a little bit wide to my forehand, and I ran out and... Uh, I basically s- sort of stubbed my toe into the astroturf and basically rolled my ankle, fell down like a sack of potatoes. Everybody, of course, thought it was a gag. Yeah. And I'm like, no, actually, my People ankle... People thought is- it was a sketch. <laughs> yeah. More improv comedy. Yeah. <laughs> People thought Connor was starting we're, his career in improv par- comedy. partners, yeah. And everybody started laughing. And I ran over and I went, no, 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 no. And I went, Jesus, they've just injured Connor Nyland in the middle of his career, like... Davis Cup match next week and you fucking Egypt fucking impersonator comes on chips a beautiful chip oh the chip I hit it put him so wide it was just he, fading away from I rolled perfectly. his ankle baby he turned me inside out <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up um, yeah I ended up having to get some ice on it it was all pretty embarrassing yeah, really but uh, you know you were just you know um, different class different class it's just different exactly. gravy couldn't I think live, you couldn't know. live with you yeah thanks yeah. a million Connor listen I have enjoyed this so much one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had because of my love for tennis and of course you being our number one tennis player for so long and what a wonderful career you've had thank you very much brilliant Mario thanks a million cheers that's it from Connor, and that's it from me I absolutely loved that chat um, I am biased of course Uh, but I hope you got something out of it as well for the week or the weeks that are in it if nothing else Um, take care mariorosenstock at gmail.com if you want to get in touch see you same time same place next week bye bye